Good morning. When I found out that uh, I, I'll call it the privilege, had the privilege of talking to you all about um, why bad things happen to good people, I think my first response was to ask that on behalf of myself. God, why do bad things happen to good people like me who have to preach on why bad things happen to good people? Um, and then the second thought I had was, I definitely think Larry did this as a setup for a Cowboys joke um, because he knows that I'm a big Cowboys fan. And I think his approach was, well, if Paul preaches on suffering, he's probably really acquainted with it because he's a Cowboys fan. And so we should give it to him. And I think it was just a cruel joke on his part. Um, but the reality is, this is a loaded question. This is a loaded question. Um, I remember one of the first times when I came across this question, I was a, a sophomore in high school and I was reading the book Night by a man named Elie Wiesel, who was a Holocaust survivor um, and spent several years in two different concentration camps um, as a teenager and young man. And I remember that there was this one pivotal story as he recounts all of these different um, horrendous events that he bears witness to. There was one story in particular that stood out to me. And it was a story of two men and a boy who had been caught trying to sabotage the Nazi concentration camp. And as an, in an effort for the Nazis to make an example out of them, they decided to have a public execution of these two men and this small boy. And it's interesting because as, as Wiesel recounts this story, he says that they had become so accustomed to evil and to suffering and to torture, that, that public executions didn't really affect them anymore. But that when this young boy was hung from the gallows, the thousands of men in this prison were crying. And in fact, one in the midst of this situation, in this circumstance, one man cried out um, amidst thousands of men, where is God now? And Wiesel recounts that somewhere from deep within him, somewhere inside, a silent voice responded, where is God? He's here, hanging from these gallows. Because the suffering that he had borne witness to had led him to the place where, where God could not exist. There could not be such a thing as God in a world full of such evil. And so in that moment, God to him had died. And it wasn't until a few years later in my own life when I realized that it can take a lot less evil than the Holocaust to cause me to question God's goodness and even his existence. It was when my mom was diagnosed with cancer and eventually passed away that I found myself grappling with some of these same questions. And my guess is that every person in this room, at one point or another, whether it's the suffering you have experienced in your own life or the suffering that you have seen in the lives of someone around you that you love, that it has brought you to your knees and you have asked this question, where is God now? Why do bad things happen to good people? Why is there so much suffering and evil and I can feel confident in saying that most of us have asked that question at some point because, in fact, when Barna um, asked Americans if there was one question they could ask God and that they knew he would answer and respond to, what would it be? Their response was, why is there so much suffering and evil in the world? Why has God allowed so much suffering and evil? 
It's a universal question that we have to wrestle with and grapple with and come to terms with. And before we dive into that, before we jump in, I just wanted to make a couple of notes um, about it. And the first is this. Sometimes when we ask this question, we can begin to feel guilty for asking this question. We can begin to even think that maybe it's sinful to ask God why there's evil in the world and why he would allow evil to take place in our lives. But I want to just start up front by saying God invites us into the space where we can ask that question. It's so interesting because as you look at scripture, there are more Psalms written about lament and asking God why than there are songs of praise and thanksgiving. There are more books, devote, there are books solely devoted to this question. There's the book of Job where he's wrestling with why bad things are happening to him and where is God. There's the book of Lamentations where God has specifically, in this case, punished his people for their wrongdoing and for their evil. And he still allows them to cry out and ask God why he's punishing them. God invites us into the space where we can ask this question. So it's not sinful and it shouldn't make us feel guilty. It's natural. And he invites us into that space. In fact, I would argue that every Christian generation has wrestled with this question, has tried to figure out why there's evil and suffering in the world and if God is still good, if that is true. And the second thing that I would want to say is, is um, I only have two hours today to try to cover the question. Um, so if we can't get through all of it, we're also going to do a Q&A. That's a lie. I only have 30 minutes, so I better get going. But if you do have questions, we are going to do the Q&A. So you can put 484848 into the address bar of your phone and then put the word questions in the body of your text. Don't put any kind of um, punctuation or anything after that. And then ask your question. And then at the end, Nick and Larry will come up and clean up anything that I miss or say wrong or anything heretical that I have to say today. Um, and so we'll, we'll create space for you guys to engage with that way, just like um, last week. And then finally, I want to say, if this is a question that, that you would like to, to wrestle with more, um, I, there's a couple of books that I would recommend for you um, that have informed a lot of what I've I'm going to be talking about today. But the first is um, The God I Don't Understand by Christopher Wright, where he looks at a lot of these difficult questions, some of these loaded questions, um, and says, God is someone that it is really hard to understand in the midst of evil and suffering and some of the things that we see in Scripture. And so he, he covers some of that there. And then Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering by Tim Keller is a great... Um, book that, that talks about the logic and the reasons um, that Christians have come to, to and how they've wrestled with this. And then finally, uh, Grace Disguised by Jerry Stetzer um, is a, a really powerful book about a man who walks through some really intense suffering. And basically his question is, can I trust God? Um, and so I would encourage you wherever you're at, if, if you'd like to dive a little deeper, um, to go to any one of those resources. Um, and again, those have informed quite a bit of what I'll, I'll be saying today. Before we go any further, I'd like to just pray for us this morning. Heavenly Father, God, this is, a, this is a tough question. It's a universal question. It's a question that we've all wrestled with. Um, but I thank you that you've given us um, the freedom, that you've invited us into the space where we can ask that question. Um, God, I pray for clarity of thought for myself today. Um, I pray that our hearts uh, would be open and receptive to hearing what you have to say, what your word has to say. Um, God, and I, I just pray you'd be with anyone in this room who's wrestling with this question, not in an intellectual way, but in a very practical way. And it's in Christ's name we pray, amen. 
So the basic argument when you come to this question of why bad things happen to good people is the the question behind the question, if you will, is this. If God is good and all-powerful, why does evil exist in the world? You see, for most people, the idea of some good and all-powerful loving God existing in the world of evil seems to be contradictory. It seems to be mutually exclusive. And so we have to ask ourselves, does the reality of evil in our world lead to the non-existence of God? And there's a couple reasons that I would answer that question, no. The first is this, that just by eliminating God, we don't actually do anything to solve suffering. So let's just say for a a moment that that I concede the, the fact that there's so much suffering in the world, there's so much evil, there's so much horrendous atrocities that take place in our world, and I come to the conclusion that therefore God cannot exist. What happens to suffering? It's still there. Evil is still present. And so then I'm left with two worse possibilities. One being that evil is present in this world because that's just the way life is. And then I have no reason to be upset about it because that's just the nature of the universe. It's cruel and harsh and too bad for us. Or the second conclusion is that we're all responsible for it. If God is not there for us to blame and for us to shout against, then we're responsible for evil that's present in the world. And so it doesn't actually help us at all resolve this question and this problem just to eliminate God. And then the second reason that I would say the existence of evil doesn't lead to the non-existence of God is because the recognition of evil actually points to the existence of God, which seems, again, like a contradictory statement. What do I mean by that? Well, it's, it's not hard for us to look at the world, right, and recognize that something has gone horribly wrong. Something is not right when we look at the world and we see suffering and, and we see tsunamis and we see people dying. But my response to that is never, oh well. Like when I see a child diagnosed with cancer, my response is not to say, man, survival of the fittest, that's just the way things are. That's never my response. My response is that's not fair. Children should not have to do chemotherapy. Where does that response come from? If there's no God, and and this is just a natural world where everything that happens is just a part of natural selection and the evolutionary process, then actually it leads me to a place where I can't be upset about the evil and suffering that I see. Tim Keller puts it this way in his book, The Reason for God. People, we believe, ought not suffer, be excluded, die of hunger or oppression, But the evolutionary mechanism of natural selection depends on death, destruction, and violence of the strong against the weak. These things are all perfectly natural. On what basis then does the atheist judge the natural world to be horribly wrong, unfair, and unjust? The non-believer in God doesn't have a good basis for being outraged at injustice, which is so often the reason for objecting to God in the first place. If you are sure that this natural world is unjust, and filled with evil, 
you are assuming the reality of some extra natural or supernatural standard by which to make your judgment. So the very reality that we can recognize the problem of evil in our world points to the potential for a God who is just and good, who knows right and wrong, that has written on our hearts the ability to recognize evil in our present reality. And so eliminating God doesn't actually help the problem. And in fact, our ability to recognize evil in the world points to the fact that there is some sort of God or being who has given us the ability to recognize that. And so if evil doesn't necessitate that God cannot exist, the question from that becomes, well, if God does exist and evil exists, is that God good? Is that God good? Why doesn't he just rid the world of evil? Why doesn't he just eliminate evil from his world if he's good? And and again, there are a couple of things that I would offer to you today. The first is this, God doesn't get rid of evil because he's good. Some of you probably wanna get up and walk out of the room right now. That's okay. God doesn't get rid of evil because he is good. How can that be? Well, let me offer you an illustration. Let's say that every one of us in this room has been given an easy button. Do you guys remember the easy buttons from the commercials a few years ago? You press the button and just anything that you want happens and anything that you're hoping to, to happen, you just get it immediately. So let's say that each of us has, a, has an easy button in our hand and if we push this easy button, immediately all evil, all bad things will immediately go away. How many of you guys would push it? Now, before you push it, I would just ask you one more question. How many of you have ever done something to cause suffering in the life of another person? How many of you have had a person you love cause suffering in your own life? How many of you have ever done something that was bad? You see, when you think about it, pushing that button becomes a lot more complicated. And if you would hesitate for a moment to push that button in order to keep yourself or those you love from being eliminated, is it possible that God in his goodness allows for evil because he doesn't want to eliminate those he loves? Peter, one of Jesus' closest followers and friends, writes in one of his epistles, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. This is in reference to the day where God is gonna come and end all suffering. He says, God is not slow to do that as some think, but he instead is patient with you, hoping that you will come to repentance and relationship with him. Is it possible that God in his goodness does not eliminate evil because it would mean eliminating people whom he loves. And if you're still wrestling with that, and the next question that we kind of come to is, okay, but then why doesn't God just eliminate our ability to do evil? Why doesn't he just remove that option in the first place? We go back to the garden, and and when uh, God creates the world, he he gives us these two options, the the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. And he says, don't touch the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because it'll lead to suffering and evil and and choose life. 
And people, humanity, we choose to reject God and choose evil. And the question is, why did God leave two trees in the first place? Why didn't he just eliminate that tree and just give us life? That seems like a much better option. Why even open the door for suffering? Why even open the door for evil? As I was thinking about that question this week, a story that I'd seen a few months ago that a friend had sent me struck my, my, um, my heart and my head. And it's the story of a, a woman who she has fallen in love. She is head over heels in love. And she's engaged to be married. And she and her friends are getting ready to have an engagement party. And as she's talking with her friends um, on this news story, she's talking about how much she loves waking up next to her fiance, how they love going on walks together, how they love holding hands. Um, And it was this beautiful story. The weird thing about the story, though, is her fiance wasn't a man. It was a robot. True story. There's a picture of it. This woman had fallen in love with a robot, a robot she had built and programmed to be in a relationship with. And when asked why she would fall in love with a robot and be engaged to marry this robot, this is what she said. He won't become an alcoholic or violent or a liar, all of which can be human flaws. I prefer the little mechanical defects to the human flaws. But that's just my personal taste. Love is love, she says. It's not that different. Oh, but it is. (laughs) Every one of us can look at this and say, that is different. None of us who came to church today are walking in here with our robot sitting next to us. And if we did, we'd get a lot of weird looks. And the reason why is even if I could conceive that this woman is in love with her robot, I can understand. I really enjoy my phone. Maybe I could fall in love with it. I don't know. But if I could even conceive that she could fall in love with this robot, there is no way that that robot can love her back. No matter how she programs it, no matter how she builds it, it is not capable of loving her Because we all know inherently that love requires choice. Love requires risk. Love requires the ability to choose not to love. And this robot has none of those functions, none of those abilities. It can only do what she programs it to do. And while we can even empathize with her desire not to be in a relationship with something that could potentially cause harm, and the choice to maybe to try to find some alternative, we recognize the hollowness of that choice. But when it comes to God, why do we expect and hope and desire that he would remove our choice? That he would remove our ability not to love him. That he would remove our ability to choose evil. While it may lead to a world without suffering, it would certainly lead to a world without love. You see, God is not just interested in receiving praise and glory. If that was all he were concerned about, he would fill the earth with trees and and birds that can give him glory but are not capable of love. But God, the greatest commandment, love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love others as yourself. God is a God of love, 
And in his goodness does not eliminate our capacity for evil because it would eliminate our capacity to love. And so God has given us the room for freedom and free will and choice. And the next kind of question that comes out of that, okay, so evil doesn't mean that God doesn't exist and maybe God has some reasons that he's chosen to allow evil and he's chosen to allow us to choose evil. But what about natural evil? Why, why, why can't it just be human against human? Why, why so much natural disasters? Why do we have wildfires? Why do we have tsunamis? Why do we have hurricanes that devastate whole groups of people? And I think the answer can be found back in that story in Genesis, in that evil is expansive. The evil that we feel in our own hearts, unchecked, grows and expands. And it seems to be that that God says that when evil entered the world through our choice, that it it was expansive and, and went beyond just the condition of the human heart to the very creation being affected at its core. And if you wrestle too long with this question, there's a reality that we have to acknowledge that there's an element of mystery around evil. That it's important to think about the, the answers and, and what is true and what is right and how to wrestle with this um, on an intellectual level, but there comes a point where reason can, can fail us and we can be left with a sense it still does not make sense why there is evil. And I think that's okay. Christopher Wright in his book, The God I Don't Understand, says this, God, with his infinite perspective and for reasons known not or known only to himself, knows that we finite human beings cannot, indeed must not, make sense of evil. For the final truth is that evil does not make sense. Sense is part of our rationality that in itself is part of God's good creation and God's image in us. So evil can have no sense since sense itself is a good thing. That's really hard to read. (laughs) Evil has no proper place within creation. It has no validity, no truth, no integrity. It does not intrinsically belong to the creation as God originally made it, nor will it belong to creation as God will ultimately redeem it. It cannot and must not be integrated into the universe as a rational, legitimate, justified part of reality. Evil is not there to be understood, but to be resisted and ultimately expelled. Evil doesn't make sense, and to a certain level, it can't and shouldn't and never will. And I'd like to to pause for just a moment and recognize that if you are in a place right now where you are in the midst of suffering, if you are in a place right now where the circumstances of your life are pressing down on you in such a way where you have been asking this question, I want to acknowledge that everything I've posited so far Everything I might have said up to this point has probably made you angry. It's frustrated you. It's left you thinking, I don't really care. And I know that because I know from my own life at the moments when I feel like I'm suffering, at the moments when suffering feels so um, oppressive, when evil feels so real, 
I honestly don't care about the intellectual arguments of how a good God could potentially allow evil in the world. I just don't care. And in fact, when people try to, to offer me answers and, and, and cliches and things that they think will help, I get angry. And I think, just shut up. I don't want to hear it. And I want to say that, that really what the question comes down to so often for us is not, is God good and can he allow evil if he is good and, and can God and evil coexist together? The real question that it comes down to is, is why have bad things happened to me? Can I trust God in the midst of my suffering when he allowed something to happen to me that I don't think should have happened? When he allowed someone I love to die, when he allowed me to experience abuse, how can I trust a God like that? And again, I would just offer that, that the reason we can trust God is because he invites us to ask that question. It seems so odd to me that a God who, if you just think about religions on a, on a global scale, all religions are trying to prove the existence of their one God or of their multiple gods or their worldview. And, and the reality is that, that in, if God was trying to prove his existence, if he was trying to tell us, I'm the real God, follow me, you would think he would not invite people into a space where they can question and doubt and wrestle with whether or not he's good. You would think that he wouldn't write scriptures or have people write scriptures and songs questioning his goodness and whether or not he is someone who can be trusted. You would think a God interested in proving his existence would say, just shut up and give me praise. But God doesn't do that. He invites us into the space where we can ask and question and doubt and lament. Psalm 13, one through two is a great one where it says, how long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? It's almost as if God knew that there would be moments in our lives where suffering was so intense that we would not be able to sing, you are a good father. And that he gave us words to express those feelings, those feelings of, can I trust you? How long will you wait? When will you show up in the midst of my circumstances? And I don't know about you, but I feel like I can trust a God who tells me that I will experience evil, but that I should never accept it as part of his original intention, but who yet invites me into the space where I can question and lament and protest the circumstances of my life. And the second reason I would say that we could trust God is because in Jesus, we see a God who suffers with us and for us. Philip Yancey says it this way. There's a phrase in the book of Revelation that says, the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. So God was not surprised by human disobedience, human failure, and yet God judged all of human history. 
including the tragedies, including the rebellions, including the crucifixion of his own son, and judged it was worth it. It seems to me that the answer clearly in the Bible is it will be worth it. And that is an issue of faith. That's a leap of faith and trust. And we have to decide, is God trustworthy or not? And we make that decision by examining Jesus. You see, in Jesus, we see a God who is willing to suffer with us and for us. And the reality is this. L.A. Weissel, when he saw the boy hanging on the gallows and, and he in his heart cried out, God is dead, God is there hanging on the gallows, he was right. But not because God is dead, but because God chose to die. Because God in Jesus chose to suffer with us and for us. He didn't leave us to evil, but chose to step into humanity at great cost to himself in order to redeem it. And think about this. God allowed the freedom to choose evil, knowing that it would cost him his son. That is a God that I think, I hope, that I can trust in the midst of my circumstances. And finally, in Jesus, we see not only a God who suffers with us and for us or who invites us to protest against our circumstances, in Jesus, we see a God who will end all suffering. We see a God who says that one day he will make all things new and that suffering will be put to an end. In Revelation 21, um, it says this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. In Jesus, we see a God who will one day redeem the suffering and brokenness that we've experienced, who will make all sad things come untrue. There's a story of a missionary who was teaching a group of, of believers in West Africa, and, and he just commented on uh, how he can be asked some pretty loaded questions in that setting um, sometimes. Um, and this is one of the stories that, that he recounts of a loaded question he received from someone he was teaching um, in West Africa, and I'd like to share it with you today to close, because in it, um, we see an answer to this question of how long. What will he say when he shouts? The question took me by surprise. I'd already found that West African Bible college students can ask some of the most penetrating questions about the minute details of scripture. Reverend, 1 Thessalonians 4.16 says that Christ will descend from heaven with a loud command. And I would like to know, what will that command be? 
I wanted to leave the question unanswered, to tell him that he must not go past what scripture has revealed. But my mind wandered to an encounter I had earlier in the day with a refugee from the Liberian Civil War. The man, a high school principal, told me how he was apprehended by two men who were on a death squad. And after several hours of terror, as the men described how they would torture and kill him, he narrowly escaped. After hiding in the bush for two days, he was able to find his family and escape to a neighboring country. The escape cost him dearly, though. Two of his children lost their lives. The stark cruelty unleashed on an unsuspecting, undeserving population had touched me deeply. I also saw flashbacks of the beggars that I pass each morning on my way to the office. Every day I see the poverty destroys dignity, robs men of the best of what it means to be human, and sometimes substitutes the worst of what it means to be an animal. I am haunted by the vacant eyes of people who have lost all hope. Reverend, you have not given me an answer. What will he say? In my mind wandering, the question hadn't gone away. Enough, I said. He will shout enough when he returns. And a look of surprise opened the face of the student. What do you mean, enough, he said. I mean, enough suffering, enough starvation, enough terror, enough death, enough indignity, enough life trapped in hopelessness, enough sickness and disease, enough time, enough. You see, we can trust God because not only does he invite us to lament and protest our circumstances, and not only do we see in Jesus a God who suffers with us and for us, in Jesus we also see a God who will one day say, enough, and who will put an end to all suffering, to all tears, to all mourning, to all death. And that is a God I believe we can trust. But I haven't answered all the questions. And so I'd like to invite um, Larry and Nick um, and Dave to come up and respond to, to a few questions that you guys might have and uh, allow you guys to clean up anything <laughs> I might have messed up. So first of all, let me introduce David Reeves. David is actually one of our former pastors and elders, um, but now he is uh, the head chaplain out at the Aurora Medical Center, and so wrestles with this question every day at a pastoral and personal level. So uh, thanks for joining us up here. Yeah, so we received quite a few questions, in fact, more than we'll have time to answer. So one of the things I would also say at the front end is um, we're going to put our emails up here, and feel free to uh, email us your questions. We're also going to stay up here after the service, and so if your question doesn't get answered, please come on down to the front, and we'd be glad to talk, or you can email us. So, um, but we have some really good questions that came in. Here's the first one. After experiencing a time of extreme loss, how do I get to the heart of a child trusting a heavenly father? Ha, <laughs> ha, 
comes, Martha is angry, confronts him, and it's interesting, to Martha he says, hey, you know, he's going to be raised. He gives this kind of intellectual response. And then when he gets to, to Mary, she's just crushed, and Jesus doesn't give any intellectual response. He just weeps with her. So I think there's both of those. So anyway, intellectually, from this perspective, I think sometimes we get confused. We, we think that life is God. In other words, if life is unfair, then God must be unfair. And I think uh, that's not true. Life is not God, and God is not life. And sometimes we think God's promising things that he didn't promise. God never promised that we will be exempt from suffering in this world. What he does promise us is two things. One, that in the midst of suffering, he'll be with us. He'll walk with us through that. He'll be present. And the other thing he promises is that in the end, he'll redeem it. Uh, um, he'll work it to his purposes. So I think that that is going on here. We don't want to identify life and suffering, and we have to have our expectations right. But that's not going to help you trust. So, <laughs> Dave. It, yeah, the, the, the trust piece, it is a really heartfelt question and a very hard question in that, you know, we, are, we aspire to have the faith of a child, and I always think of a very small child who's trusted. Their parents is just perfect and complete and... Um, you know, and, and that is an aspiration, and the fact that this question came is, means that is an aspiration you probably already have when you ask that question. And I think that's heart of it, or that's the heart of it is to try to have that as an aspiration. And the second part is we, we are adults, and we are going to have the, the hard part of our hearts where we've had things that make us ask hard questions. We will have doubt with our faith. Our faith is not 100% complete. Um, but trying to get to that place and just focusing on uh, the things we can do that help build up the trust and build up our, our thought processes is really good. I think things like um, a gratitude journal where you're just trying to notice and write and name the things that are good that are going on in your life put you more in a place of a childlike trust. Um, but we're, we're also adults, and it's hard to, hard to get there in a total way. It is aspirational. We never achieve there, but we strive toward it. Good. Next question. Is it a sin to be fearful of cancer that your child has? Wow. I, I think... Um, <laughs> That's why we brought yeah, him up here yeah. so we didn't have to answer everything. <laughs> what, do we, what do you guys do with our time? <laughs> um, we should hate cancer. And uh, I think Paul said that very well in a number of different ways during his sermon. And to fear it is, is absolutely human. And I, um, I think in our heads, we have faith in one place of our head and fear over here, and we think the two should never mix. Um, I, th I think in the Bible, they come together. It's why we're so often encouraged, fear not. Um, it's not that, again, that's something we ever achieve, faith and fear be together. You know, it's, it's hard to go to, it's hard to travel to a new area, a new part of the world where you don't know the culture and the language. And um, to have a child with cancer and to be scared of it, that's a, that's journeying to a place where it is so hard to imagine what that's going to be like and what's it going to do. It, it makes good sense to have fear, I think, in there. We strive to have more faith, but fear will be part of the human condition. Yeah, we tend to fear that which we can't control. Yes. Um, you can't control that if your kid has cancer. How could you not be afraid? I think you can be afraid and still trust God, but 
it, it would be abnormal not to fear for, because you love this kid and, and you don't have any guarantees uh, uh, of what's going to happen in the interim. You have guarantees of the long eternity, but not of the in-between. And to kind of piggyback off that, I would say, look at the life of Jesus. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, mm, yep. Jesus is deathly afraid of what is coming. Um, and it's not sinful. It's not wrong. Um, he is trusting God and yet deeply afraid at what he knows is coming next. And so I would just say um, that you're in good company um, and that, that Jesus shares that space mm-hmm. with you. Mm-hmm. One more question. So is pain evil? Is suffering evil? Wow. <laughs> That's another I, great question. It's Christians, I think we always talk out of two sides of our mouth in terms of suffering. Um, We should, with all of our heart and soul, fight against suffering and try to eliminate suffering in the world, period. Um, When suffering happens in our life, not if, when suffering happens in our lives, um, it does redeem us, it does shape us, it does make us better people. We're not flagellists, we're not people anymore that beat ourselves with whips and things like that because we believe that suffering is good um, in that sense. We don't try to harm ourselves for that. Um, but, but the suffering that comes in our lives shapes us and creates us and helps us realize that a lot of life is outside of our control and hence gives us faith. So. I'm not sure we want to say pain is completely evil. I mean, leprosy is uh, a disease you get when your nerves don't register pain. And that's why they get deformed, is because they can't feel pain, so they don't have any warning system. So there's an aspect of pain that is preventative. It's kind of the way the world is wired to help us know where the boundaries are. Uh, um, so, so there's a sense that pain is used for good. Uh, um, but I do think it's part of the fall. We get confused sometimes. Even before the fall, there's death, right? <laughs> I know you don't think about this. You can't digest food without death, right? Bacteria destroys what goes on. Life doesn't go on without death. It's, so, so sometimes we assume there's no suffering in, in a, a perfect world. There's probably pain because there's boundaries in a perfect world and you have to have a way of registering those boundaries. So in a, a way I wanna say a, a lot of pain is evil, but, but it's a bigger concept than that. A lot of suffering is evil, but it's a bigger concept than that. And the, just one thought to add that is I think sometimes uh, we can call evil good um, and we can say that uh, things happen for a reason and that this is actually um, a good thing and not a bad thing. And, and the Bible is pretty clear. Evil is evil. Um, and, and suffering falls in that category. I think Nick's right that there's, it's helpful for boundaries and stuff. But we have to be careful that we don't um, come to someone and say, oh, your suffering is actually a good thing. Um, your suffering isn't uh, a bad thing. Um, and I think we have to, to be pastoral in that as well and how we, we treat people. Good. Do we have time for one more? Real quick. You are saying that God permits evil to exist because we have a choice. How do you explain cancer, famine, and earthquakes? No one is choosing that. And you have two minutes. <laughs> well, I, think, I think Paul already, go ahead. I mean, you addressed this somewhat in the sermon, though. 
Yeah. <laughs> cool. <laughs> Do yeah, why don't you take this, Nick? You're above my pay grade. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we live in a, an American context where individualism is huge for us, so we view life from an autonomous perspective. So we have this notion, yeah, if I commit sin, it should impact me. But the reality is we live in a fabric, okay? So if I sin, not only does it affect me, if I drink too much, it may destroy my liver. But you know what? If you drink too much, it's probably going to destroy your marriage and hurt your wife and wreck your kids. Uh, it's not just about me. Sin is part of this fabric. And we like to think it's only part of the human fabric, but the way that God has created it's uh, the fabric goes beyond the human to the natural. So in that story of the garden, when Adam sinned, it's not just that his sin impacted him. Guess what? His sin impacted me and you, and because it's part of the fabric, impacted all creation. So the whole universe fell because of sin. It was like he unleashed this power that had a ripple effect, not only on people, but on all of creation. And that's so out of context with our autonomous thinking, our individuality, that that's hard for us to understand. But it's because we don't see life correctly. You have to see life as this fabric that we're all part of. And when I sin, it's going to have a ripple effect. Good. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you for such great questions. Appreciate you texting those in. Well.